I have worked with trauma and abuse victims for 50 years this year. That's a whole lot of people. Yes. And in the course of that work, I have come across two who were not telling the truth. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I think we are saying we're afraid of something happening that is extremely rare. Mm. And so if we build our responses based on something extremely rare, we're going to miss the great majority of people who have been terribly wounded, often in God's name. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey. And I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are joined by internationally recognized psychologist, counselor, and speaker, Diane Lingberg. She's the author of a book entitled Redeeming Power. I have to say that this is one of the most important and moving episodes I've been a part of. There's a moment near the end where I ask Diane, after all these years seeing the worst that humanity is capable of, how do you keep from losing hope? And in this time of trouble and war, I hope that her answer ministers to you as much as it did to me. This semester, I'm teaching a class called Leadership and Discipleship. This is the third time I've taught this particular course. The first time I taught the course, the content centered primarily on leadership skills, principles of nurture, and organizational dynamics. The second time I taught the course, we leaned into self-awareness and emotional health. I've tried to keep those two components, but this third iteration, I've also added a module on power. My hope is to help these young leaders identify power dynamics and learn to exercise their power in a way that reflects the loving life-giving character of Jesus. But before we can use power this way, we first have to reckon with its abuse, which includes acknowledging our own capacity to harm and our complicity in systems of injustice. One of the resources I've added this semester is Dr. Diane Langberg's book, Redeeming Power. Over the course of a long career, Dr. Langberg has spent her life with vulnerable victims in some of the hardest places, like Rwanda after the genocide, or the killing fields of Cambodia. In counseling victims of abuse, she has seen some of the worst that humanity can offer. But the name of Dr. Langberg's book is Redeeming Power, because as brutal as the abuse of power can be, she believes there is something deeper than power, something able to heal it. Love, seen most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. This book is important for my students because it is a book about leadership written with special attention to the voice of victims. Langberg writes that learning to hear these voices is like learning to hear a new language. And whenever you learn a new language, there is something called the silent period, where you get a sense of a previously unknown voice which rewires the way you think. Without a silent period of listening, we cannot learn a new language. Langberg reports that a similar silent period is necessary when listening to trauma victims. She writes, They spoke a language I did not know and told stories I had never heard. I chose to push my thoughts, my categories, and my language aside until I learned something of what it was like to be them. Power can be difficult to discuss, especially when we are the ones who have it. 
Certainly there is more to human life than power. The whole of human culture, meaning-making, and life together cannot be reduced to a struggle for dominance. But power dynamics are real, and they matter, even for who lives and who dies. Listening to the voices of the vulnerable must change the way we lead. As Langberg writes, their testimony is prophetic. In them, we hear the voice of God to the church. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Diane Langberg. So I'm joined now by two guests. The first is my co-host, Dr. Tara Bohr. Tara is Associate Professor of Social Work here at Dort. She's also a licensed therapist working with victims of trauma, and she works to equip churches in abuse awareness, prevention, and response through the Safe Church Ministry of the Christian Reformed Church. Tara, thanks for hosting with me. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We are honored to have as our featured guest, Dr. Diane Langberg. Dr. Langberg is an internationally recognized psychologist and counselor who speaks around the world about trauma and abuse, and her most recent book is Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Dr. Langberg, we are honored that you've joined us on the NL Things podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I wonder if we could begin with the name of your book, which again is Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. And I wonder if you could start us off by defining the terms for us. What is power? Uh, What is vulnerability? And what is abuse? And why is it important that we understand um, these concepts in the context of the church especially? Well, power is simply about impact. Uh, which can be big or little, but all humans have impact. And I think I start the book out talking about a newborn. Anybody who's had one knows this, uh, you know, what it's like. You can be exhausted. It's three o'clock in the morning and the baby cries and two grownups fly out of bed. (laughs) That's power. Uh, Vulnerability is the capacity to be wounded, which is true of all humans. Obviously, in the newborn, if the grown-ups don't jump out of the bed, the baby is and, and is not fed. The baby is uh, at risk. The vulnerability makes them at risk for not being fed not and eventually not living. Uh, and so all of us, no matter how big and grown-up and powerful we are in what we do and everything else, all of us are vulnerable. We can all be wounded. And then abuse, if you trace that word back to, say, the Latin or something, it basically means to use wrongly. So on a non-human level, it would be like, you know, using a hammer to uh, screw in a screw. You know, it's not going to work and it will do damage. And so when, when we experience abuse, someone has exploited us, has violated us in some way, tread on us. Uh, they've they've taken advantage of our vulnerability as humans and used their power to use us wrongly. I really appreciate your discussion on the different forms of abuse. I think it's so important that that those are named well and defined well, especially in the context of of the church and the power dynamics that come in that. Um, and it seems like discernment is really important as we ensure that what we're taught in the church is really God's truth, right? That it that it's the kind the good truth that has the capacity to convict and not words that are misused that harm or hurt you know vulnerable members. I was wondering if you could talk a little more about what what spiritual abuse might look like in our churches 
and how we might be able to detect or confront that when when that happens? Well, I think we have to start with the fact that spiritual abuse is an oxymoron. You know, if something is of God, it, it bears his nature. And so if we, working for him in some position or with degrees or whatever, we use our words, our position, our authority, anything to take advantage of, misuse another person to feed ourselves in some way, it's spiritual abuse. We have used spiritual tools and positions to hurt someone, which of course looks nothing like God. He has all power and he used all power to become little and be wounded on our behalf. Yeah, and I've seen, I've, I've, I too have been in a profession like you where I've heard stories of people, you know, that have sought counsel from uh, religious leaders in their church and um, sometimes hearing the messages that they receive from those religious leaders are really uh, not that helpful in terms of them naming abuse uh, as what it is and being able to find safety after that. So I just really appreciate thinking through what that what that looks like as we examine what truth is. Well, and oftentimes that spiritual authority is used to protect a system, not a, not a sheep or a lamb. And so uh, even in hearing about abuse and believing the story, you know, just forgive and go on and it'll be fine. What will be fine is maybe the system, not the sheep or the lamb, and eventually not the whole body, because that will seep out and do damage to the entire system eventually, which we've seen lots of that in the news. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because we are in this cultural moment where light is being shed on abuse in institutions. There's the Me Too movement along with the corresponding Church Too movement, and that's revealed in many ways just how pervasive the problems are, uh, especially in some of our religious institutions. Uh, But there's also been a pushback, as you mentioned, uh, a desire to, again, protect the institution, protect the system. And there's a concern that people will go too far and that there will be spurious accusations or that cancel culture will get carried away and take down beloved pastors, leaders, or institutions. How would you respond to that resistance? How should we think about it? Well, first of all, it it, it does not make sense in terms of the reality. I, I have worked with trauma and abuse victims for 50 years this year. That's a whole lot of people. And in the course of that work, I have come across two who were not telling the truth. And it didn't, they didn't even last very long in their not telling the truth because it was so obvious, you know. You know, like a very angry adolescent who wanted to bring down her politician father. And so she made up a story. It felt like a made-up story. So I think we are saying we're afraid of something happening that is extremely rare. And so if we build our responses based on something extremely rare, we're going to miss the great majority of people who have been terribly wounded, often in God's name. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of times there is um, such a fear for the institution and not for the victim, as you said. Uh, You know, you're afraid that if this institution gets something revealed about it, it will compromise any good work they've been doing or something like that. How, How do you respond to that concern for? institutions that a lot of times is allowed to trump concern for victims or even a desire to to listen uh, to the voices of those who have suffered? Well, I think, first of all, we have to look at Jesus' response to institutions. Um, he did not protect them. 
I mean, he was, you know, he cracked whips and turned tables over twice. Because the first time they didn't listen, of course, the second time they didn't listen either. His response was to weep and to say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would, but you would not. You wanted to preserve your institution. And in doing so, he told them they were robbers, blind guides, and a den of robbers, which means a safe place for those who steal, which is backwards from a sanctuary. The word sanctuary means the opposite of that. But we do, and and I think that's part of what God is in the midst of all of this trouble and stories and sadness and grief that so many of us have. He's shining a light on his church. You have loved your institutions more than you have loved me. And we become a den of robbers. We are a safe place for those with power who steal. We're not a safe place for the little ones. And that breaks his heart. So I think we would be very wise to listen to him in these situations that we wish were not true and see what he's teaching us and how we have loved our institutions and protected our institutions and all these systems using his name and looking nothing like him. So he's calling to us in the midst of this. Yeah, I can sense, um, Diane, just your your awareness and your passion. And I think that's something that comes so, so naturally and, um, yeah, just organically as we sit in those hard spaces with people who share those stories with us. And when we have the privilege of of hearing them, it's really hard not to have this sense of urgency to inform our communities and our churches that uh, we have to be vigilant, we have to be aware and we have to be a, a safe place for, for people to come forward. We live in rural communities. Um, a lot of uh, the Christian Reformed Church communities reside in a lot of small rural communities across the United States. And and that doesn't mean it doesn't happen in, in urban communities either. But I tend to um, hear this overriding narrative that these things just don't happen here. Or, you know, that uh, we're close enough. We know everybody. They wouldn't do that type of thing you know, that happens out there. Those problems are out there, you know, and you talked about this, this form of communicating and educating communities. Um, I'm wondering if you found other ways that we can kind of break through that barrier that, that the, with that idea that these things just don't happen here. Well, the statement, I think, frankly, defies the scriptures, which says that the human heart is so deceitful, nobody gets it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's basically what it says. And so to say that doesn't happen here is to disbelieve. And we also do not understand the power of deceit in ourselves or in others. So you can have somebody who is kind to you, who gives a lot of money to the church, who cares about certain things and all of those things, who is a tyrant at home, who only hits his wife where nobody can see or abuses in other ways, whatever. And everybody says he's a very nice man. And so when you say, well, but he did this to me, they say that can't be true. And it can't be true because of these other things that he does. But the other things that he does make it so that you won't believe that it's happening. And so he can do it some more. And we have been deceived by the deceivers and the deceiver in thinking that we have somehow managed to create a place 
on this earth with human beings where these things don't happen. There is no such place. That's called heaven. It's not here. So, Diane, the name of your book is Redeeming Power. Uh, you don't want us to abandon power. As you said, you know, we have power from the moment we come into the world, um, and we have to use it from the moment we come into the world. You want us to use it in a Christ-like way. So I wonder, how do we help people become alert to power dynamics, and especially abuses of power, uh, without allowing the fallen use of power to become the only thing we see or say about power? Uh, how do you think about that, uh, how we can leverage power in a way that fits the kingdom of God, to see power and to be able to know the potential and the reality of abuse, but not to have that be the only thing we say about power? Well, number one, you're doing it with the podcast. To have a podcast, you have a voice. You have an inroad with some people. That's power. You have verbal power. You have power over some of their time, all those things. And you are using and committed to using those things for his sake and their sake. So that's an, an example. You know, you're not king of a country or queen of a country. It's nothing big like that. But you're using what you have where you are to speak truth and to invite people into that truth. So I think we have to think about that more broadly. You know, you think about... Uh, for example, a father who has a job, but he doesn't make very much money and his children and he feels bad about who he is and all those kinds of things. But he is by character uh, a honest and loving man. He has tremendous power over those lives. And he doesn't have to have all the bells and whistles for that to be true. He's daddy. <laughs> you know, that's it. Or he's husband, whatever. And so humans all have it. The question is, do I use it to feed myself by exploiting others in some way? Or do I use it in the name of Christ to look like him for all people, most certainly for the least of these? It's a question nobody should escape. <laughs> I think you cite a study um, where you talk about the fact that as people ascend in leadership or ascend in their platform, the more they lose empathy for those who are below and you say, you know, that's scary in any sphere, but it's terrifying in the church. I wonder if you could say more about the relationship between sort of as people get larger platforms and get more power and how they can lose a connection with an empathetic connection with those that they're seeking to serve. Well, I would say, first of all, that many people in those positions have never used their power well. It just didn't show. You know, the bigger and more famous and everything else they got, the more it started to show. So it's not usually something you wake up one morning and start doing. <laughs> you know, it's how you live your life. You could have been a bully of two kids on the playground. You know, it could be that kind of thing. And nobody would think twice about it, maybe, except the two kids and their parents. But it, over time, the burden and expectations that are placed on you because something you've done is getting bigger and bigger the part of you that feels little, which is why we bully people and everything else, gets terrified more and more. And the only way to cut down that terror is to make everybody else small. And in order to do that, you have to treat them certain ways. And you try to find ways to do that that are deceptive so they don't know you're doing that. But eventually it really starts to show because you're practicing maintaining all the power and taking it away from other people. And you end up trampling on them and then somebody squeaks. And everybody says it can't be true. 
the bigger the system, the more threatened you are that somebody will find out you're really not who they think you are. And so they have to do more to cover it up and they have to have more power to make themselves feel better. It's a relentless cycle. It's highly destructive, as we know, not just to the person who's doing it, but to everyone around them. Yeah. And you talk about that level of empathy that's really needed for people to feel safe in the church, for those that are wounded or hurt or are abused, um, really feel safe enough to come forward. And I'm, I'm really interested in that conversation in my role as um, a safe church leader in our community. And um, I've have this observation that a lot of the leadership in the churches in terms of the pastors and the elders and deacons often are males. And, and more often than not, a lot of the, the claimants or those that um, say that they've been harmed are female. And so I'm trying to navigate what that's like to create the safe environment for those, those victims that are coming forward and might be um, pressed to have to give their story or their testimony of what happened to them um, in a room full of men. And I'm wondering how you would respond uh, to that, that structural dynamic that we have in place in our churches or, or what we could do to ensure that really everyone feels safe when they have a story to tell. You mean other than changing the structural dynamic? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're, you're, sir, welcome to suggest whatever you think uh, will bring that rede- redemption forward. Well, you know, I, I've, uh, I've been asked in a couple of places to talk specifically uh, about the church and women and things like that and power, whatever. Yeah. And one of the things I am struck by, so... Uh, you know, if I work for 50 years, I'm a lot older than 50, right? <laughs> and I grew up in a Christian home, and I was treated wonderfully there and encouraged to do whatever I thought God was telling me to do. So there, none of that was in my home growing up and things. But I am struck by the fact that I've been in church since I was a little girl, and I have never heard a pastor teach a series of sermons on the women in the Scripture. Never. So you you think about that, number one, in terms of, you know, there's some women in there who did some things many churches would tell us not to do. Secondly, I've never heard a series or sermons on how Jesus treated women. And I am very struck in the Gospels. I mean, you look at him with the Samaritan woman or the women. Women walked around with him with the disciples. You know what kind of rumors they probably got? And he welcomed them. Uh, But I'm also struck by the fact that if you go back to the temple, the Hebrew temple, it had a women's court. They weren't allowed any further. There was a place for the men, and no women could go there. And there was a women's court, and they could go there. When Jesus was raised from the dead and going back to heaven, he sent the disciples to the upper room to wait for the Spirit of God. And the women went with them. They were there with the disciples And they also became full of the Spirit. There was no women's court. He demolished it. He didn't say anything like that, but he did. So you have these women who are filled with the Spirit of God. So I think, and and I'm not saying that means women should do everything in the church. That's not my decision. You know, people think what they think, and they also have a conscience about what they think. So I wouldn't touch that. But the fact is, we need to raise our women up in the way that Jesus did. He sat with the Samaritan woman and talked to her. She was Samaritan. She was the wrong race. She was certainly the wrong gender, and she had the wrong moral history. I mean, it's three strikes. He sat with her, and when she left to go back to the village, she brought 
back the men. She went and got the men and said, come and see who I have met. So we need to look at these things more deeply and study them and look like him. Yeah, so not only just to consider the mere structure, but just um, the way that that Jesus allowed himself to be approached and um, the interaction he had with women could be replicated, that, that genuine and sincere and care for women um, could be replicated in those disclosures and those those um, hard conversations. Yeah, and so um, kind of moving on a little bit more as we try to be preventative and, and like you said, uh, talked about, you know, potential sermon series and things that we can incorporate into our church conversations. I really um, would love to hear about what kinds of programs or initiatives that we can can start and support in our churches that really help congregation members, first of all, feel comfortable coming forward um, and seeking healing for any abuse or mistreatment they've experienced, as well as heal, you know, from that, that churches would truly be a place of, of healing and restoration and freedom um, that they could turn around and love and heal their neighbors, you know. So I just I'd love to hear about your vision and hope for, for the church in terms of programming or, or other initiatives that we could support. Well, I think there are probably many places to teach about these issues sort of in bits and drops, which is something you can start pretty easily. You know, if you're going to list some things that have injured human beings in life that need care, just put the word abuse in the sentence. I've said that to pastors through the years, and they call me up and say, now what do I do? I've got 25 women who've come forward. All they needed to do was put it in a a sentence. I I think that by not saying anything, it's the big secret, you know, and nobody thinks to tell or thinks it's safe to tell just by acknowledging it. Obviously, though, if you're going to do something like that, you need to be somewhat prepared. Right. For the disclosures Um, and for the stories. right? Right. So I think that church leadership needs to do some reading about abuse, just even one or two basic books you know, something on sexual abuse, something on domestic abuse, whatever, so that you understand the dynamics of those things and the uh, outcome of those things and how damaging it is, so that if somebody comes to you, you at least have a sense of what they're talking about already and have some words of comfort and hope for them. I think churches need to have um, references available. For people like yourself, you know, who who are known to work with abuse and trauma. So if somebody says, you know, so-and-so did so-and-so, you, you have read something, you know how to respond, and you say, this is who you need to go see, they'll help you. But then I, I think also um, that there's a um, training thing called Healing the Wounds of Trauma that is has been developed by the American Bible Society, and it's used all over the world. And it's it's being used by different organizations now, and it's being used for, you know, Muslim women in North Africa who've been trafficked and all kinds of things. But it's a small group thing, and it, it's, it's not therapy, you know. It, it's not that kind of thing, but it normalizes what people are afraid makes them really strange and weird, like I can't sleep at night stuff. And it helps them understand how it's affected them. And they get to do it in a small group with others who understand. And so they have trainings all the time. Mm. You know, you can go on their site and look that up. It's made to be church-based. And it's made to be 
um, simple is not the right word, but you know, it's not like coming to see you, you or me, <laughs> you know, and it also is a way that women or men, because uh, there are often men who have to have groups too, because they get abused. We often seem to yes. forget that. Um, but they have a space to go that's safe where they feel normal in the sense of when you get abused, this is what it looks like. You know, it's not because I'm weird. It's not because there's something so broken in me, I'll never be okay. So it gives them hope and mm-hmm. it gives them some companionship along the way. Right. Yeah, I once read that, um, you know, trauma response is a is a normal response to an abnormal experience, right? So it's yes, kind absolutely. of this, this, shared, this shared sense of I, I'm confused by what my body is doing and my brain is doing can, can be alleviated by having that sense of community, companionship, friendship, and connection with others within the church community that yes. um, can make them feel heard and understood. Yeah, I also have a ton of resources on my website. I have videos teaching on this topic. So if leaders in a church want to hear some of that, um, you know, on domestic abuse, sexual abuse, all those things. There's also a list of books uh, that are resources with these topics, uh, for these topics that I've recommended. So, you know, there would be another place people could go and just say, okay, we're going to get 10 people in the church educated about this, and then we'll see what we do next. Yeah, we will link to all of those resources in the show notes so that anyone listening to the podcast can make sure that they get uh, those resources uh, that you've referenced. So I'm teaching a class right now called Leadership and Discipleship, and I have 20 students who are in their early 20s and are training for various vocations. Some are going to be engineers, some are going to be in ministry, others are going to be social workers. And we're reading your book in our class. Um, And so I'm wondering... For a young person who's just starting out um, and is going to serve in leadership capacities and in the church mostly, but also um, in other leadership spaces, what's one of the most important things that they should know? And what's one of the most important practices that they can begin to do to make sure that they take power, vulnerability, and abuse seriously in the way that they think about leadership? Well, I think one of the things that the church at large seems to have put by the wayside to some degree is the idea of self-examination. And so I would think that that should be part of that course, you know, in terms of where have I been vulnerable? How have I handled that? How do I make it go away? Because that's what we all want to do. Where has deception played a role in my life? Where is it doing that now? So there would be a lot of things like that. What do I do when I'm angry? How do I show that? I don't think we ask those questions about ourselves. You know, we get knowledge and training, and then we go out. But we don't, I mean, Paul tells us to examine ourselves. Actually, I think there's a talk on my website about that. You might get some questions from that as well. Um, But I think that's one of the things that anybody who's going to be in leadership should learn the art, so to speak, of self-examination. And the other question I would want people to think about when they do that is, when I do this, do I slide into beating myself up? Because that's not what God does when we do that, you know? So the the question is, what am I doing basically in these areas that doesn't look like him? And how am I responding to myself that doesn't look like him? So that would be part of what I would uh, encourage because they have power this way to themselves, not just to everybody else. And many people use that power for themselves 
sometimes in exploitive ways or abusive ways, but sometimes in very punishing ways. You know, they're their own worst enemy, as we say. I think you mentioned that in your book when you talked about, um, I don't know if it was anecdotal observation or if it was a research um, discussion about how so many pastors and church leaders um, really aren't um, either seeking out mentors or being mentored um, in the way that they had hoped or thought would happen, you know, when they enter into the messiness of ministry. And um, I can see such wisdom in that and in, in grabbing on to those, those mentors and those leaders to, to be, have those intimate conversations about how do I respond to confrontation or to criticism or conflict and how can I make myself more Christ-like in that conversation. So I appreciated that observation, too, in your book. I, we hear this a lot, too, in our clinical work when there's interpersonal wounds between each other. And I think sometimes there's this really shallow and um, insincere note to just say, just forgive them and move on, you know, just forgive. And God says, forgive. And Jesus says, you should, you know, forgive this harm. And I think when you're in those really hard and dark spaces with people, you recognize that forgiveness is 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 so layered and and much more difficult to kind of wrap your arms around than everybody would like to realize. But I am really concerned and interested in helping not only this interpersonal forgiveness, but when you talk about the systems harming, you know, people and families, how that forgiveness can take place and healing can come in, in sometimes those misunderstandings or even abusive situations. I don't I just would love to hear your thoughts on that forgiveness process. Well, I would first say that in general, I think we often in the church, we often misuse the word. I mean, it essentially means quit talking about it and make it all better as if it didn't happen. That's not forgiveness. That's certainly not how Jesus forgives us. <laughs> He's scarred for forgiving us. Yes. So forgiveness is costly. It was costly to him. And we don't teach that part. We also teach it like, okay, I forgive you and then that's it. Which is ridiculous if any of us are honest. That's not how we have forgiven anybody. <laughs> it's again and again and again and again. And it may be something you have to do for the rest of your life. If it's something like uh, sexual abuse by a father and an uncle for 10 years or something, that's not something you just say and it's gone. So I think oftentimes those things are taught in ways to silence victims, not because we don't believe them, but because we don't want to stay with them. We don't want to keep hearing it, even though they keep hearing it. Right. You know, we want it done once and for all. It's a process. It's very painful to forgive. Again, Jesus has scars that he will have for all eternity. So you, you don't forgive without cost. And I think that needs to be taught and that it is a long-term, repetitive process. Heaven knows I've had to ask him to forgive me for a long time, <laughs> and sometimes repeatedly about something. So why would that not be true for other people as well? So over the course of a long career, um, you write about having gone to some of the hardest places like Rwanda after the genocide or the killing fields in Cambodia. You talk about counseling victims of abuse and you have seen some of the worst that humanity can offer. And I wonder how do you personally, or how have you over 50 years uh, kept from losing faith in humanity on one hand or losing hope that things can get better? 
And then for all of us who are carrying various types of burdens, both of our own and of others, and who sometimes feel overwhelmed by all the evil, how do we continue forward with courage and hope? Well, not without bumps. Um, I tried to quit twice. (laughs) (laughs) The first time was more asking God, you know, can I stop now? (laughs) And the second time was not asking him. It was telling him, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Those have been turning points in my life because it was at the end of myself. You know, I, you know, how many stories can you listen to and still go outside and smile at somebody? And then beginning to see internationally, talk about systems. My goodness, you know, what do you do when you stand in a church full of bones in Rwanda? <laughs> what do you do when you stand in Auschwitz where, you know, where I don't know how many people, the millions of people died? The second time when I, I told him I was quitting, um, by his grace, he pursued me, of course. I obviously haven't. But each time, I have learned something about him in a different way. And that's how I could go on. And what I've, it took me a long time. But, you know, part of the reason some of us go into these sorts of professions is because we have hope through Christ. We believe in the power of his resurrection. And we don't want to know anything about the fellowship of his sufferings, none of us. And that's where he's always taken me. And he's always taken me back to the cross. There's nothing I will see or hear that is not on that cross that he didn't bear. So when I move into these things, I find him. And in that way, it's been you know, working with these things has been the most awful thing I've ever done and the most precious thing I've ever done because he's sharing his heart with me. He's sharing with me what he sees when he looks at this universe, which when he was here, he wept over. So, you know, we, we, I think start out, or at least a lot of us do with these naive ideas about Christianity and we're going to know Jesus and we're going to feel better and it's going to be all nice. We're going to tell people and they'll be happy to hear and everything. That was not his life. Walking with him does not look like that. So on the one hand, it's extremely difficult. And, you know, I have people in my life who hold my arms up and all kinds of things. But ultimately, I have to keep going back and saying, okay, teach me something I don't see. Teach me more about the cross and what you did there and what you're doing now and what you want me to see and do in your name. You know, so often when you work with these sorts of things, you encounter cases where you're just swallowed by them and and you can't see any light at the end of the tunnel or anything. And when I was in Rwanda one time, I met with a whole bunch of genocide survivors and listen to their stories, which, I mean, it's just unspeakable. But at the end of that time, as I was leaving the building we were in, a man came up to me, and he was a genocide survivor who'd lost his entire family, not just parents' family, but aunts and uncles and grandparents, you know, the whole thing. And he said to me, I saw only evil since the genocide. I no longer believed God to be good. The church was not a sanctuary for my family because there are bones in these churches. It was a cemetery. And I think there are abuse victims today who have been abused in churches and had people silence them and everything else who would say the church has been a cemetery for them. But then you all came. 
You listened and you heard my broken heart. And now I think I can believe that God too is listening and hears my pain and will be my sanctuary because I have gotten a taste of him through you. That's one of the greatest treasures I've ever been given by a human being. But that's supposed to be the church. But it's also supposed to be us as individuals, whether the system does it or not. And so it's slow work, it's repetitive work, it's grueling work, and it will teach you more of him and you will give off his fragrance to people who didn't even know it existed and make them hungry for him. And it's worth every minute. The book is Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Our guest has been Dr. Diane Lingberg. Diane, thank you so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andrea Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andrea Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.